Oh, good morning. Thank you for the warm welcome. Let's turn in our Bibles together to the book of Jude, second to last book in the Bible. Find Revelation and go back a couple pages and there's the little epistle of Jude. Great to see all of you again. It's been a few years since I taught here last, but what a blessing to be back. Book of Jude, I'd like to draw your attention to verse 3, and then go ahead and pray one more time as well. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put it on the screen for you. Notice what Jude writes here in verse 3. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're just thankful to be here today, thankful to know you, thankful to have your word open up before us. And God, we do pray now that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts, that you would encourage us in the faith, that you would bless this time. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever tried to talk to a non-Christian friend about God or the Bible only to have your words shot out of the sky with an objection? Like there isn't any good evidence that God exists? Or religions, including Christianity, are responsible for most of the world's wars, suffering, and atrocities? Or they say the God of the Old Testament commanded the Israelites to commit genocide. How could you believe in a God like that? Or they say the Bible oppresses women and promotes hatred of homosexuals. Many critics of Christianity today have an arsenal of these kinds of conversation-halting objections ready to unload at the first inkling someone's about to talk to them about Jesus. Have you heard any of these kinds of objections? If you've tried to share the gospel with people in the 21st century, you're familiar with this kind of pushback. Question for you. When these kinds of objections come up, do you feel you're prepared in those moments to contend earnestly for the faith? What does Jude mean here when he exhorts us to contend earnestly for the faith? Well, the word contend literally means to fight. The word earnestly means seriously or intensely. And that phrase, the faith, refers to the whole body of revealed truth contained in the Bible. So Jude, writing words here under the inspiration, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, instructs Christians to fight for the truth of God's word. Now, don't misunderstand Jude. He's not encouraging you to get into physical fights with people. Don't do that. No, we're instructed in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, to live peaceably with people. Paul said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So when Jude tells us to contend earnestly for the faith, he's talking primarily about countering the errors, the misconceptions, false teachings about God, not with fists and guns, but with truth. 
So contending for the faith really is just speaking the truth in love, answering people's questions about God, answering their objections to Jesus, responding to their criticisms about the Bible. But that's not always easy to do, is it? It often takes preparation and study and research to have those kinds of answers ready for people. Well, this morning in our time together, I'd like to respond to several of these popular objections that atheists and skeptics are bringing up in conversations today with Christians. And my hope is that it will leave all of us just a little bit better prepared to talk to people who have these kinds of questions and objections to God and the Bible. So I hope it's an encouragement and helpful to you. The first objection that I'd like to address concerns the Canaanites. It's not uncommon to hear atheists today say that the God of the Bible commanded the Israelites to kill the Canaanites in the book of Joshua. A loving God would never do that. Well, how might we respond to that? I like to ask people questions. And I'd encourage you to do the same. With this objection, I'd start off by asking them this question. Have you read the Old Testament passages regarding the Canaanites? Often they haven't. They've just heard about the supposed genocide. If they do say they've read the book of Joshua, you might ask, do you recall what the Canaanites were doing that brought God's judgment on them? I can assure you of this, the answer will almost always be no. So then you might humbly, lovingly bring them up to speed a little bit regarding what the Canaanites were doing at the time of Joshua. The Bible tells us that the Canaanites were an exceedingly wicked people who were sacrificing their children by fire to their god Molech. They were also committing incest and adultery, polygamy, bestiality, witchcraft, and a variety of other abominable customs. The Canaanites had become a dangerous, cancerous threat, not only to their posterity and to their neighbors, but to the Israelites. So God determined that the Canaanites' time on his planet was up. And he sent in the Israelite military force to put a stop to the wickedness. Just as, centuries later, he would send in the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to put a stop to the wickedness when the Jewish people began engaging in the same activities. Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, that God is not one to show partiality or favoritism. He brought judgment on the Canaanites just as he would later on the Jewish people. Friends, as you know, God created the earth and all of its inhabitants. So he has the right to do whatever he deems best with his creation. All of life belongs to him. Think back with me to World War II. Most of us believe that the Allied powers, which included the United States, had the right and even God's approval to go to war against Nazi Germany and Japan to put a stop to the evils that they were committing. 
When President Trump came into office in 2017, he authorized our military to wipe out ISIS. Remember them? Remember some of the evil things they were doing? Well, I think most Americans approved of that decision. Well, this raises a question. If human governments have the right to send in a military force to put a stop to evildoers, doesn't God have the right? Surely he does. If our non-Christian friends who are critical of the Bible today were alive at the time of Joshua and were aware of the great atrocities going on in the land of Canaan, I think many of them would have been in approval of God's intervention. I do find it a bit odd that atheists today commonly say if God exists, he should intervene and put a stop to evil and suffering. In the book of Joshua, we have an example of God putting a stop to some of the evil, and atheists say a loving God would never do that. Hmm. Seems to me that no matter what God does, people who want nothing to do with him find fault. Well, the skeptic says, surely God doesn't even exist. If he did, he'd just appear to us in a public setting and prove it to the world. People who raise this objection overlook the fact that God has already done this when he came to the earth in the person of Jesus. He raised the dead, healed cripples, opened the eyes of the blind, proved he was God in the flesh. And what happened? Did everyone repent and believe in him? No, they led him away and nailed him to a cross. One of the reasons God doesn't appear to people today is because he knows that wouldn't change their hearts. And God knows that he's already provided enough evidence for his existence for those who truly want to know him. What evidence, someone asks? How about the fine-tuning of the universe or the mind-boggling complexity of living organisms or the information we've discovered encoded into DNA? or hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, or the historical evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, just for starters. I agree with Norman Geisler, a great biblical scholar who went home to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. He wrote this. He said, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe. Yet he has also left some ambiguity so as not to compel the unwilling. In this way, God gives us the opportunity to either love him or to reject him without violating our freedom. I so agree with that. I also concur with J.P. Moreland, a Christian philosopher. He was interviewed by Lee Strobel some time back, and he said something similar. I think he's worth quoting here. He said, God maintains a delicate balance between keeping his existence sufficiently evident so people will know he's there and yet hiding his presence enough so that people who want to choose to ignore him can do it. This way, their choice of destiny is really free, end quote. I so agree with that. God is so wise. He maintains that perfect balance. There's enough evidence out there for anyone who wants to know him, and yet he's hidden enough so that if you want nothing to do with him, you can freely go your way. Well, the skeptic says the Bible was written by men. It's not trustworthy. 
It's almost humorous to me how often people think they can get the Bible out of the conversation by simply pointing out to you that the Bible was written by men, as though we didn't know that. Of course, the Bible was written by men, but we believe it was written by men who were guided by God as they pinned down its words. But when someone tells me this, I like to lovingly point out to them that their conclusion does not follow from their premise. Just because something was written by men doesn't mean it's not trustworthy. If what men write is not trustworthy, we'd have to throw out encyclopedias, dictionaries, automobile manuals, everything the IRS sends us. <laughs> written by men, toss it up. Can't trust it. Men are capable of communicating truthfully, especially when they have God's help as we know the biblical authors did. Many critics of Christianity today who think that the Bible is just a compilation of ancient myths and legends overlook the fact that there is a wealth of evidence for the Bible's trustworthiness. I have here in mind hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, thousands of archeological discoveries. It's incredible internal harmony historical confirmation that we've discovered in the ancient records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans, scientific discoveries that have verified details in the Bible. There was a discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in 1947, which give us the assurance we have accurate copies of the ancient books in the Old Testament. There's the writings of Flavius Josephus, a first century historian who verifies dozens of details in the New Testament for us, and so on. If you'd like to learn more about this kind of evidence for the Bible, a couple of my books can help you in that regard. Another objection I've been hearing more lately has to do with the size of the universe. Atheists commonly say that the universe is so vast, it's foolish to think a God built a universe billions of light years across just to have a personal relationship with you. In other words, it's absurd to think that God would create all these other planets and stars and galaxies if the focus of his love was really just right here on our tiny planet. Well, in response to that, I would know that the enormity of something has absolutely no bearing on whether or not God exists, for God could have several good reasons for creating the universe the way he did, including the knowledge that his creatures would find a sky full of stars to be quite beautiful. That could be sufficient reason in itself. In reality, I think the enormity of the universe with all of its billions of galaxies and stars, proves to be more of a problem for atheists. Why is that? Well, the world's leading atheistic authors and philosophers believe every star, planet, and galaxy in the cosmos sprang into existence from what Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking said was literally nothing. Friend, that requires an enormous amount of faith. For we all know that nothing cannot do something, let alone turn itself into billions of planets and stars and galaxies. Well, our friend says it's a fact that humans are the product of evolution. 
Well, that is certainly not the case. There are insurmountable problems with the theory of human evolution. I can't get into all of them in a talk like this this morning. But one fatal blow to the theory of human evolution that I think Christians would be wise to become more familiar with is the fossil record. The fossil record. If evolution really is the explanation for all of life, the fossil record should show continuous and gradual changes from the bottom layer to the top layers. But it doesn't. Nearly all groups of animals appear in the fossil record suddenly, simultaneously, fully developed and with absolutely no hint that they evolved from anything else. Those facts are devastating to the theory of human evolution. The fossil record is actually evidence for a global flood, as recorded in the book of Genesis, not evolution. And the so-called ape-men fossils that have been sold off to the public as proof of human evolution have again and again turned out to be an embarrassment to evolutionists. Let me just walk you through a few of these quickly. The first one has to do with Piltdown Man. You probably heard about him growing up. In the village of Piltdown, England, an amateur paleontologist found part of a human skull and part of an ape-like lower jaw with two teeth. Scientists hailed the discovery as a major missing evolutionary link between apes and humans. For 40 years, it was taught in schools as proof of human evolution until it was exposed as a colossal hoax. Forty years after the bones were put forth as evidence for human evolution, a team of scientists at the University of Oxford proved that the Piltdown skull belonged to a modern human and the jaw fragment belonged to a modern orangutan. It was also discovered that the jaw had been chemically treated to make it look like a fossil and its teeth had been deliberately filed down to make them look human. Piltdown Man was a forgery. But what about Neanderthal Man? I'm sure you heard about him. School children, again, were taught for decades that Neanderthal Man was proof of human evolution. But now, with the help of DNA technology, we've learned that Neanderthals were just humans. Not ape men or ancestors of modern humans, just humans. What about Nebraska Man? Nebraska man, as depicted in this artistic propaganda, was based on a discovery of a single tooth in Nebraska. Pretty amazing what they can drop for the textbooks and the museum exhibits based on the discovery of one tooth, isn't it? If I had walked by that museum exhibit, I'd think they found the whole village and all kinds of tools and stuff. No, just one tooth. And they sold that off to the public again as proof of human evolution until years later when scientists proved that the tooth belonged to a pig. What about Lucy? 
unearthed in Ethiopia. A collection of fossilized bones was boldly proclaimed as the ancestor of all humanity. In newspapers, textbooks, on television shows, and in museums. But evolutionary researchers have more recently concluded that she should no longer be considered a direct ancestor of, me, of humans. Surprise, surprise. What about Ida? I'm sure you heard about her. In 2009, the press hailed the fossilized remains known as Ida as the missing link in human evolution. And some even referred to her as the eighth wonder of the world. But Ida was more recently and quietly reclassified as a small-tailed extinct primate and ancestor not of humans at all, but of lemurs. Oops. Friends, the fossil record has been and always will be an embarrassment to the theory of human evolution, and we know why. Humans are not the product of millions of years of mutations and evolution. We were created by God. Your human body with its 206 bones, more than 600 muscles, and a heart that beats more than 100,000 times a day as it pumps about 75 gallons of blood an hour through more than 60,000 miles of veins, arteries, and capillaries in your body shouts design from top to bottom, you are fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving creator. That's the truth. Well, Charlie, the New Testament author stole the whole idea for Jesus' virgin birth and resurrection from ancient religions that are around prior to Christianity. There's a popular video that's been on the internet now for several years. It's called Zeitgeist. I'm sure some of you have seen it. This low-budget video produced by a man named Peter Joseph went viral. It's been viewed by millions of people now all over the world. And many viewers, unaware of the video's errors, have had their confidence in the Gospels severely undermined after watching just a 30-minute video. The video alleges that the New Testament authors plagiarized major details for Jesus' life from earlier sources, other religions that were around before the rise of Christianity. For example, the Zeitgeist video says the gospel writers stole the idea for a virgin giving birth to a child from the ancient religion of Mithraism. Well, I happen to know some things about ancient religions. I've taught college-level courses on world religions. I've spent hundreds of hours researching these kinds of religions. And I've researched the ancient Persian religion of Mithraism. The person who made this video realizes that most people have never even heard of Mithraism, and they'll probably just believe whatever he had to say about it. Well, I, I'm familiar with Mithraism, and the ancient myths that supported this false religion never spoke of a virgin birth. The deity within Mithraism was named Mithras, and the myths say that Mithras arose spontaneously from a rock inside a cave. Does that sound like a virgin birth to you? To suggest that the gospel writers plagiarized or stole the idea for a virgin birth from Mithraism is preposterous. The virgin birth of the Messiah was not plagiarized from Mithraism at all. It was actually the fulfillment of a prophecy given in the book of Isaiah, 
Chapter 7, verse 14, six or seven hundred years before Jesus' birth. And many Bible commentators believe the virgin birth of the Messiah was prophesied as far back as Genesis chapter 3, where God seems to indicate that the coming Messiah would be born to a woman apart from a relationship with a man. But what about the resurrection? Do the New Testament writers steal the idea for that? As the Zeitgeist video claims? Well, again, the answer is no. Jesus' resurrection wasn't borrowed from some other religion. Again, it was the fulfillment of prophecies made by Jewish prophets as far back as a thousand years before Jesus' birth. David, writing around a thousand BC, and the prophet Isaiah, prophesying around 700 BC, both foretold the coming Messiah's resurrection. They prophesied it would happen long before Jesus was even born. So you can be confident that this charge of plagiarism is not true. If you need more help addressing these plagiarism charges or the Zeitgeist video, you can go to our website, alwaysbeready.com. We've got an alphabetical menu on our homepage. You can go all the way down to the bottom of the list to the Z's, click on Zeitgeist, and you'll find... Uh, more in-depth response to that video. Another objection we're hearing more today concerns the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. Critics of Christianity point out that Jesus said to love people, even your enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Christians' rejection of homosexuals is downright hateful. Well, I think it's important to point out to people who bring this up that we certainly do not hate people who identify as a homosexual or a lesbian. Many of us have a friend or a coworker or a family member who identifies as such, and we love these people. The Christian view towards same-gender sexual behavior should not be viewed or understood to mean that Christians reject or hate the people engaging in that behavior. My wife and I have been married for 25 years. We have five kids, and occasionally we view some of their behavior unfavorably. And we'll tell them that. I'll say, you know what you're doing right now is not pleasing to the Lord. But the way you're treating your sibling is, is rotten. God, God would not approve of that activity or that kind of behavior. Question for you. Does that mean I hate my kids because I disagree with them over an activity or a behavior? And because I'm willing to, to, to say what God says regarding that activity, doesn't mean I hate them at all. Disagreeing with a person over an activity does not equal hatred. People in our culture want you to think that, that if you don't applaud everything that someone wants to do, you're a bigot, you're hateful. Not at all. We love the person, we disagree with the activity on biblical grounds because God says that activity is sinful. So we distinguish as Christians between the person and the practice. It's only same-gender sexual activity we're opposed to, not the persons engaging in that activity. We can still be kind and loving to them, just like we would want them to be with us. Well, our friend says, Jesus never said a word about same-gender sexual activity. If it was sinful or important to God, he surely would have addressed it. Well, there are some problems with that conclusion. First, the Gospels don't record any specific instruction of Jesus on a lot of things we know to be wrong. Bestiality, rape, and incest, for example. 
Jesus may have mentioned those activities. The Gospels don't record for us every single thing he ever said. But we don't take the lack of recorded instruction on these activities to mean they must be okay. For they're condemned elsewhere in the Bible. Secondly, Jesus affirmed the authority and trustworthiness of the Old Testament scriptures where homosexual activity is clearly condemned. Thirdly, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus explicitly reaffirmed the Genesis account of marriage that describes marriage as the one flesh union of one man and one woman. And fourthly, Jesus condemned the sin of pornea, a Greek word that encompassed every kind of sexual sin in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7, verse 21. So this objection that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality falters as a means of justifying that activity. Well, Charlie, the Bible is oppressive and harmful to women. If someone tells you this, you might ask the person this question, have you studied the Bible? Now, watch your tone. I'm not encouraging you to be snarky here, but just have you, have you read the Bible? And if they say, yes, I have, then I would follow up with this question. What passages did you find most oppressive? Let's talk about them and see what the person says. I've been reading and studying the Bible for, I don't know, 30 years now. I've come to the conclusion after many trips through the Bible that the God of the Bible loves and cherishes women. But millions of women who read the Bible on a daily basis have come to the same conclusion. They've understood that the Bible says men and women are both made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 makes that clear. And are equally valuable and important to God. They've read Paul's instructions for husbands to love their wives even as Jesus loves them and was willing to lay down his life on the cross for their sins. They've read the passages where men are told to do nothing from selfishness and to even consider women to be more important than themselves. They've read about the friendships Jesus had with women like Mary and Martha and how he healed several women. They've read about women like Ruth, Deborah, Priscilla, and others who are portrayed in the Bible in a wonderful light, and they've understood that the Bible condemns activities that hurt women. Things like physical and emotional abuse, adultery, abandoning one's wife, and rape. Friends, if people followed Jesus's teachings more closely, the world would be a much better place for women today. You can be sure of that. Well, our atheist friend says religions, Christianity included, are responsible for most of the world's wars and suffering and atrocities. Unfortunately, religious terrorists, greedy televangelists, child molesting priests, and so on have done things that are terribly hurtful to people. There's no denying that. But there are two things I think critics of Christianity overlook when they raise this objection. First, Jesus and his teachings are not to blame for the evils people commit. The evil things people do go against Jesus' instructions. 
Jesus taught us to love people and to treat others the way we would like to be treated. For example, in Matthew 7, verse 12, he said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. In other words, if you want people to be friendly and kind and forgiving with you, well, then Jesus would say you should be friendly and kind and forgiving with people. This is commonly called the golden rule. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Imagine how much better the world would be today if more people did this. So while religious people have caused some suffering, let's not lay any of the blame for the world's evils at Jesus' feet. A second thing commonly overlooked when people blame the world's suffering on religious people is this. Atheists and non-religious people have caused a lot of suffering as well. Richard Dawkins and atheists don't like to acknowledge that in their books, Attacking Religion. They don't talk about the fact that Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, and Mao Zedong murdered as many as 100 million people in just a few decades of the 20th century. That's far more than those who were put to death by theists of any stripe over the past 500 years. So it just isn't true that religions are responsible for most of the world's wars and suffering. Well, Charlie, God of love would never send anybody to hell. I find it interesting that so many people today are confident that God is so loving. Where do people get the idea that God loves the whole world, including sinners? The Buddhist scriptures, perhaps, known as the Tripitaka? No, you won't find it taught there. How about the Hindu Vedas? Nope, no loving God there. How about the Quran? The sacred text of Islam. Nope. The God of the Quran does not love sinners, and it states it over and over again. For example, chapter 2, verse 276, right out of the Quran, Allah does not love any ungrateful sinner. Chapter 3, verse 32, surely Allah does not love the unbelievers. There are dozens of those kinds of verses in the Quran. The idea that God is a loving, merciful, forgiving God comes from the Bible. It's the Bible alone amongst these books that presents God as gracious, loving, merciful, and forgiving of sinners. A lot of people today have gotten their idea that God is loving from the very same book that teaches us about hell. The problem, though, is that a lot of people want to treat the Bible today like a salad bar. They say, oh, yeah, I'll have a little bit of that, a scoop of that, a little bit of the love. We'll, we'll take a generous helping of that, some of the mercy. None of that judgment stuff. Pass on that. None of the hell stuff. We don't like that. That's what they do. With the Bible. They take what they like from the Bible and reject all the other stuff. Well, that's unwise. 
The same divinely inspired book that tells us God is loving also tells us that God is holy and just. Non-Christians are right in believing that God is loving, but they have seriously erred when it comes to his holiness and justice. And because God is holy, because God is just, unrepentant sinners will be judged and condemned and cast away from God's presence forever in hell, unless they're reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. But Charlie, why, why would God have created us if he knew in advance that so many people would end up in hell? I believe the simplest answer is this. Just as God knew many would reject him, the opposite is also true. He knew that many would freely receive him and enjoy eternity with him. Apparently, even knowing many would reject him and end up in hell, he felt it worth it so that you who would receive him could have fellowship with him and him with us. Should God have refused to create humans just because some would refuse to have a relationship with him? I don't think so. That would allow the evil actions of some to rob others of the wonderful blessing of knowing God and enjoying him forever. Friend, do you know the loving and merciful God revealed to us in the Bible? Have you had your sins forgiven? Will you be with us in heaven? That's why Jesus died on that cruel wooden Roman cross. Because of his great love for you, the Bible says he died there in your place to suffer the judgment you deserve for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be rescued from spending eternity in hell and be brought back into a right relationship with your maker. But Jesus didn't stay in that grave. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And today he offers all of humanity the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and the free gift of everlasting life. What a gracious offer God has made humanity. We deserve judgment and condemnation for our sins. And yet God says, actually, I've got something way better for you. The forgiveness of all your sins and the free gift of everlasting life. What an offer. What a gift. How do you lay hold of it today? Well, Jesus said, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. God has done all the work. And now he just wants you to place your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross. And you can do that today. God is a prayer away. You can call out to him before you walk out of this building and just pray something like this. God, thank you for loving me. Please forgive me for my sins. I renounce them and turn away from them. And I trust in Jesus Christ today to save me. Come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. If you'll pray something like that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't put it off. Maybe you need to get right with your maker. Today's the day. Your life could come to a screeching halt much sooner than you're anticipating. 
And you want to make sure that when you stand before your maker, your sins have been washed away. There's only one way that can happen, though, and that's if you have a relationship with Jesus. So call out to him. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I know most of you have, may the God of heaven and earth empower and embolden you to share the gospel and, when necessary, contend earnestly for the faith, as we're told to do in Jude verse 3. Amen? Amen. I'm nearly out of time. I want to quickly mention a couple more resources at my book table if you'd like to go deeper. Just about everything I shared with you in today's presentation is pulled out of my book, uh, One Minute Answers to Skeptics. I mentioned it back in 2019 when I was here. If you're unfamiliar with the book or don't own it and would like to go deeper, you might pick up a copy of that. We went through maybe 10 objections to God in the Bible today. This book goes through what I think are atheists' top 50 objections to the Bible. So we've got some of those on your way out. You'll also see on my table that we've got 34 DVDs out there on a wide range of topics related to the defense of the faith. These aren't documentaries. They're me. They're videos of me giving live presentations in front of church congregations across the country. But we know that most of you donated your DVD player to the Salvation Army like 15 years ago. So we're continuing to make DVDs for, you know, people over 40. But, um, we, what we decided to do is also just put the whole collection on a USB thumb drive the size of a AA battery. Um, if you're interested in owning the whole set, you might stop by the table and look at those. You can stick it in a USB port on a television set, pull up any of the videos there. You can stick it into a USB port on your computer, watch the videos there, or even transfer them onto your iPad or iPhone. We give you some simple instructions on how to do that. And then also, over the last couple of years, I've been writing fictional novels for the teens in your life. I know a lot of teenagers today are not going to pick up one of my nonfiction books called Scrolls and Stones. That doesn't look any fun to read. So what I thought, you know, what if I was to sprinkle some of this evidence for God and evidence for the Bible into fun-to-read, action-packed novels with teenage characters as the focus? I thought maybe teens would find that kind of a book fun to read, but then in the process of going through the book, they're also going to get some good apologetics, some good theology, some good encouragement and equipping when it comes to the truthfulness of the Christian faith. So if you have a, a teen in your life that you're wishing to love the Lord and trusted the Bible, you might pick up uh, one of these. I will say they are in sequential order, so if you're just going to get one, get the one on the left. That's part one, and then it goes part two and part three um, over on the other side of the screen. So I thought I'd highlight those resources if you'd like to get some further equipping. Let's go ahead and pray. And I believe the worship team is going to come up and close us in a final song. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the freedom of religion that we enjoy in this country and that we can gather together in a place like this and open your word together and sing out to you. What a sweet time of worship that was this morning. And God, we're thankful that we can have an intelligent faith, a faith that stands up to the critics, a faith that has answers to the objections and the questions that people have. And Lord, we do pray that you would give us a renewed concern for those who are perishing, that you'd give us your heart for them. We want to get the gospel out to them and, and answer the objections that they have and, and questions. So Lord, we pray that you would enable us to do that. We pray that you would strengthen us to do that. 
God, we pray as your people that you would fill us afresh this morning with your spirit and that you would guide us and help us to shine as bright lights in our sphere of influence here in the harbor, God. Go with us this week. Lord, may you be glorified in everything that we do and say in the days ahead. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for letting me share with you this morning.